Did you know a birth control pill doesn't need estrogen to prevent pregnancy? Say hello to Estrogen-Free Slind, a progestin-only pill with no unnecessary hormones. It's over 98% effective with a flexible window to catch up on a missed pill. Don't take Slind if you have kidney, liver, or adrenal problems, cervical cancer, or hormone-sensitive cancer, or unexplained vaginal bleeding. Before taking Slind, tell your doctor if you may be pregnant or have had blood clots, stroke, heart attack, high potassium in your blood, diabetes, or depression, which can lead to serious side effects. Talk to your doctor or visit Slind.com. Montgomery County, Maryland is where businesses go to be next. Home to a highly skilled, diverse workforce, a thriving business community, competitive incentives, and more. MoCo will help transform your business. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com to see how we can help you be next. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of, of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is... The Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this episode we're welcoming back our old friend, Dr. Reverend David Parry. And he is, uh, well he's been on the show before, but he is also the founding member or the, the inspiration, the the power behind the Nephilim Anthropology uh, Conference that's coming up. Is it anthropology or is it anthrosophy now? Uh, no, no, no. It's still Nephilim Anthropology. So. Good. I, could, I, I have an easier time pronouncing that word, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um, and folks, so yes, we're going to talk a little bit about the Nephilim, but we're also going to talk about a bunch of other stuff as well. And hopefully it'll fit into our Spooktober, October, but it's definitely going to tie in into the NACON conference, which of course we will mention again at the end of the show. But for those of you who have an interest in giants and the uh, story of Genesis and 
just really anything to do with the Nephilim and who they are, who they might be from different perspectives, you're going to want to check out the, the NACON conference and you can get there. I mean, you could simply Google Nephilim Anthropology Conference and it'll get you there. But the website is HTTPS colon backslash backslash. The first three letters are capitalized N-A-N-A-C-O-N dot Eventbrite, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot C-O dot U-K. And the E in Eventbrite is capitalized as well. Um, and the tickets are obviously still available for the virtual. Uh, I'm not sure if there are any in-person tickets left. If you're in the London area or, or if you're near the UK and you want to travel there, but David, you could, you could tell us what the ticket prices are. Um, firstly, it's a huge honor being back on your show, Jeff. I mean, um, you, you've been a stalwart. You've been a true champion of this entire project. Uh, through all of its ups and downs, and um, I can't tell you how grateful we all are, me in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm the honour of being the founder of, of this bewildering project. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, I mean, your, your, your support, your, your, your gatekeeping activities are fully appreciated and very, very much needed. So it's an honour to be back. Um, certainly, there's a, there are a couple of tickets left in person uh which comes to i don't know the american equivalent forgive me 49 pounds 99 pence so roughly 50 pounds uh for two days um uh, that the 29th of course is the in-person day uh we will be live streaming everything but that's the primary in-person day excuse me if you're only uh going to come along uh via zoom it's a mere 25 pounds well, there you go. That, that, I can't beat it. And with the strength of the pound these days, I, I, us in the U.S., we, we might get, uh, they may be paying us to, to attend. But uh, it's been, uh, that's my attempt at bad uh, conversion humor. Um, but it's been my pleasure. I, I thank you for the kind words. But uh, it, it's been mostly a ton of fun to be involved with the conference and all the people I've met and all the guests that I've had and it keeps expanding and uh, it's really helped this show uh, raise its level of the tier of guests. I don't think I would have gotten to some of these folks um, on my own, maybe ever, but certainly it would have taken years as opposed to months um, to get the Gary Waynes and the Maria Wheatleys uh, and to the Mark Ollies and, and, you know, if it, if it wasn't for you and Alan and, you know, everyone else. And, you know, I mean, Johanna, I mean, Luke, Michael Ironside, who's one of uh, my favorite guests and one of the favorite guests of the listeners, because all of his shows are still in the top 30, even though some of them are well over a year old, um, et cetera. I, I, you know, I don't want to name names too much because I'm going to forget them obviously um and people have come and people go and people people will come back again but so today's topic folks is you know the 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 story in the film starts in genesis but genesis starts with you know a certain somebody saying let there be light and there's angels and throughout the the bible and then the ancillary uh, uh books some of which are canon, some of which are considered non-canonical or apocrypha, others which are sort of in between, some things like the Book of Enoch, and then you have the mysticism and 
Kabbalah and, and Sufism and everywhere else. There's angels, there's demons, there's cherubim, there's seraphim, there's the malachim, there's the nephilim, there's the raphaim, um, and there's there's Satan, and there's seven princes of hell. And I, I just want to know, who are all these? Like, what, what are their relative ranks? Uh, just so, so this is going to be a uh, celestial beings um, minus God. We're we're going to we're going to go with God speaks for itself and is at the top of the heap. Um, but who's everyone else? Who are who are these nine choirs of angels? Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? So I don't know where you want to start. Maybe probably the nine choirs of angels. Is it nine different ranks? Like. What's the difference between a cherubim and a seraphim? I think I'll shut up now and, and just listen. <laughs> well, the, the trouble is, I mean, it's a theological minefield that you can imagine. You know, and anybody that's wanted to be anybody has always put their five pennies worth in and given a new theory about who everybody is and where everybody stands. And that's not quite as cynical as it sounds. Uh, you know, if you're looking at angels, the concept of messengers heavenly messages as they originate in ancient Israel, um, you're looking at something quite rudimentary. I mean, it's obviously tied in with the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. I mean, I seem to remember that mysticism was quite a bad word or a misinterpreted word, or rather a word interpreted in America in a way we didn't use it. Um, it tended to mean crazy guy at one point over there or somebody on the verge of madness. That's never actually been the way Europeans have used that word. Uh, what it tends to imply over here is some sort of depth in consciousness or some sort of height, which is very, very rarely achieved. Um, so you're looking at quite a different interpretation to begin with of what the mystics are doing and where they're coming from. Um, so Jewish mystics, Jewish magicians, some of the highly trained rabbis would have said there are celestial powers, you know, God is the ultimate architect but he doesn't do his own stonemasonry he doesn't do his own building he has people to assist in the building process and those heavenly powers were designated in certain ways I mean, and then of course a rail breaks out you know who's doing what according to the various rabbinical schools um, the interesting thing i suppose from my point of view is it changes with history um, and again that's not necessarily people making things up. I mean, it might be a clash of seers through time as things change in, in other worlds. Um, you know, certainly Carl Jung, who tends to be my guide in all of this, as opposed to one of the great mystics, would have said, well, no, you're looking at uh, the same materials but from different angles depending on the century. You know, and what the major scholars, what the zeitgeist of that century actually were. You know, what was what he was doing. Um, so you come from that quite rudimentary uh, court of the Jewish God, Jehovah, where, of course, Satan would simply have been adversary in the sense of the prosecuting lawyer. Um, you know, you would have been approaching the throne of the Most High for the great assize at the end of time, at the end of time being, of course, your personal time. It didn't mean the world ended all of a sudden, or it came to mean that. It meant when you died, the world ended for you. And there was a, a prosecuting lawyer saying, what a bastard you were. And there's a defending lawyer saying, hang on, hang on, hang on a minute. He's not all bad. He's a good guy. Let's look at the bigger picture. And so 
in the Jewish sources, it tends to start really on that level, very undefined to begin with, really along the works, along the model of a courtroom. Uh, and that begins to change as the prophets develop what they want to say to Israel. I mean, we've got to remember what the prophets are doing. And certainly they're not simply guys that see into the future. That's one of the hallmarks of the trade, that a prophet is a great moral authority, a great judge. They came to judge Israel as a nation. And the idea of individual sin actually was unknown in the ancient world. They wouldn't have thought that way at all. You know, was a community, but uh, were the children of Israel living according to these divine ordinances? Are you, are you doing the right thing as you understand it with your neighbour? Are you defending the kingdom of Israel as you understand that? And therefore the prosecuting angel really was speaking against Israel as a whole, not an individual person. That comes a lot later. Um, whereas the defending lawyers uh, wouldn't really have been the Messiah. That comes a lot later. You know, that, per that guardian angel that looks over your shoulder would have defended you. And the great court would have judged accordingly. Um, it's when you get to Isaiah and strange accusations happening, which show not only the evolution uh, of religious insight, but also the, uh, the, the evolution of humanity generally. The prophets start saying, your view of God isn't big enough. You've got this tribal view that is not acceptable. God is bigger than all of this. And that's when you get the fall of various angels from their original estate. Um, Isaiah describes it as um, one of the heavenly ones. Iniquity was found in the thing. You fell like lightning from heaven. I'm paraphrasing terribly. You know, and that's when you start getting the satanic figure that we know nowadays, which of course sets up a rival court to the court of God and becomes the enemy of the heavenly of the heavenly circles. Um, I'm more comfortable, I suppose, as somebody looking at these things from a Christian perspective, looking at what Christians did with those materials, um, in the sense that I do know a little about the Jewish background. I know a little about the Islamic development of the Jewish and uh, Christian background. I mean, they wanted to introduce a whole new range of entities called the jinn um, that were made of fire. I mean, they, they, they're not of human origin at all. Uh, people misunderstand that very much in the West. There are good jinn, there are bad jinn. Uh, the really powerful ones, unfortunately for us, tend to be the, tend to be the bad ones. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're, they're a fact of life in Islamic countries. I mean, even in the very sophisticated cultures I've had the privilege to visit, they all believe in jinn. And they all believe in their interactions with, with humans. Uh, strange ideas again. You've got a, a scholar at the moment who's very, very popular, Karun Yahya, who says strange things like, you know, at the end of time, we'll all have a personal jinn that will do our bidding. And it, so it must, but it mustn't be mistaken that we're dealing with genies. We get the English genie from that. Right. Uh, the jinn are uh, species not angelic, but not demonic, that have their own function and their own view of what's going on under the direction of Allah. Uh, but they complicate and muddy the, the waters even further. <laughs> um, Christianity, of course, I mean, you know, where do we start, start with all of this? Um, let's look at the Catholic model. I mean, you've got nine circles, nine 
hierarchy, the highest orders being the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones. Um, and we'll get to them in a minute because most people, you know, you're not looking at uh, beautiful human beings with feathery wings, you're looking at something much more dramatic. You get the middle orders, uh, the dominions, the virtues, and the powers, and you get the lowest orders, uh, the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. Do you notice when people are talking about angels, they're actually the lowest outpouring of, of celestial life? Um, all of that tends to be based upon the Neoplatonic idea, the, the ideas of Plato and his school of God not really being a being, but being beingness, you know, the origin, the source, the, the, uh, the, the starting point of all creation. But the, the point beyond creation which gives birth to creation, and it, one of its, its, her, his elements, one of its qualities is abundance. Um, and there's an overflow of divine abundance, which goes down the different levels of being um, and creates as it overflows these different hierarchies, these different choirs of angels. And certainly if we, we actually look at the Bible, um, some of the encounters with angelic life are more or less horrific. Um, you know, these, uh, they're, they're certainly the, the devoted servants of God. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're very far from human. I mean, one of them is described as having a face like lightning, um, and none of the people encountering it can even look on it. They pass out with fear more or less instantaneously. And um, some of them are just six wings and all feathers and all eyes. I mean, there's nothing anthropomorphic there. So you're looking at uh, beings of a different quality and level to us. And certainly, if you're looking at the two highest, uh, the cherubim and the seraphim, um, you know, six faces, sometimes four, six wings, sometimes more, um, that, are, that, are, that are, you know, entities way above anything in the created order as we know it, that float forever in a sea of light and bliss and can barely notice us. I mean, they're not, they're not bothered in our existence. They don't think much of us in the first place, but if they've noticed at all. Um, and they're simply there as part of the divine overflow, part of the cement building blocks that hold creation on a multi-level view together. So that those are the sort of, that's the Catholic stroke orthodox uh, view of the, the chain of being. And the Protestant churches, this isn't a crack, this isn't a go, tend to reduce it all to, you know, feathery human beings that flit about um, and take messages. Why not? <laughs> you know, that's one of the what are their main functions? But there's a lot more to it than that from the Bible itself. And of course, there's an argument which has haunted the church from the beginning about which books should be included and which should not. And they were looking at different Bibles. Uh, you know, the Protestant Bible has 66 books, approximately, sometimes more, sometimes less. Whereas the Catholic Church has 60, 67, 68. Right. Um, and that's not the same as the Orthodox Bible. Um, what came first, you know, Catholicism historically in the West, but very soon after you get Christian orthodoxy. And it's arguable. I mean, my last book on Mount Athos, I, I hoped I made it rather clear that really how did Christianity start as a cult? And there's nothing insulting in saying that, you know, a group of religious people looking for spiritual truth as a small minority in those communities. 
would have been orthodox. It wouldn't have been Catholic. I mean, if you get an orthodox monk looking back to the origins of Christianity as it was then, they'd have recognized something orthodox, not Catholic. So, you know, the whole thing is complicated. It's a mess. Or, you know, is it just deep material that needs to be categorized at some point when somebody, you know, wants to get round of it? The great schools don't do anymore. You know, gone are the days of the schoolmen in medieval Europe. Gone are the days when they wanted to categorize everything. That's really where all this comes from. And, and gone are the days when angelology was considered a minor branch of metaphysics, you know, where, where the great scholar saints were, were trying to talk about things that seem to us ridiculous but aren't really when you get into the mindset. Like St. Thomas Aquinas, the great ox of learning. You know, Fatty Aquinas, one of my favourite people. Um, and and the ox of learning, as they used to call him, a gigantic brain, the whole of theology and philosophy in the Middle Ages was based on his thinking. You know, and, and there are people around that want to have a go at that, you know, because he posed the question, how many angels do you get on the end of a pin? And people tend to mock that without actually realising what he's trying to do. He's actually talking in our modern terms about the concept of non-spatial being. You know, what do we mean by existence? What do we mean by manifestation? What do we mean by consciousness? What do we mean by those things? All of which arise from questions like that. It's a very medieval way of configuring those questions. I mean, another one would have been, did Christ own his own clothes? Uh, which translates into modern times uh, into the much more awkward question of should the church be rich, uh, own property, own paintings, um, have these huge estates, or should it be serving the community uh, through church, you know, house churches uh, in poverty? Should it be doing that through the goodwill of ministers in their own local homes and communities? So they had a different way of organising questions in those days, but mostly it comes down to quite profound questions about things we're still arguing on today. Does that help at all, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think it, it confuses me even more, which I think was uh, sort of the, the point. Uh, I guess the answer is it depends who you're asking, who they are. There's no uh, simple answer now, uh, you know, so, but if I understood correctly, the angels that most people know of, your angel of death, your archangel, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, those, those names, they, they're sort of in that, that lower third. Yeah, yeah. But the great chain of being would work on the fact that there's a hierarchy of being, and therefore angels as we normally see them and perceive them on Christmas cards, you know, in movies. Sure. You know, the nice guy with the, with the charming smile who will sort things out. Um, they're really only a step or two above us, and Swedenborg is an example, a, 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 a unique cultural treasure. Swedenborg can claim to be the only European shaman, the only Western shaman we've ever had. A naturalist who started having visions. Um, a man of immense scientific learning and attainments that towards the end of his life started to claim, well, actually, you know, much to my surprise, along with everybody else's, I'm beginning to see other worlds. Um, and he documents, so he does what a, a naturalist does, he documents for 30 years. Um, and you get very strange ideas, like actually human beings become that type of angel. We're in a sort of transition process. We start 
uh, as an idea in the chain of being before we're actually born. We become manifest through our parents, through our community, through the people who love us. But we actually evolve on the next level up into angelic life. That's our destiny. So, you know, it, yeah, it, it gets very, very complex. And it, it really depends on the scholar you're talking to and also what their credentials are. You know, are they simply logicians moving categories and logical questions about to answer a particular philosophical or theological problem? Or are they visionaries? Are they mystics who claim some sort of direct interaction with those types of beings? Let's, let's go with some of the commonly known figures in, in this world. So probably the one of the first angels we encounter is the angel that guards the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are cast out. And I believe that's described as a cherub. And on, yeah. so in all of the paintings, it, it looks like a, you know, a, a human man with a fire sword. But the description of cherub, as, as you're describing, it, it wouldn't look like a human man at all. There'd be six wings or, or, and four heads and, and, uh, and something like that, or, or am I misremembering? No, no, actually, you're very, very to the point. I mean, we've got to remember the concept of the devil, um, really, as we understand it, emerges in late medieval Europe, arguably mid-medieval, but I'd suggest late medieval Europe, where you get sort of the horned adversary of everything good and his minions. Oh, we'll we'll get to the devil. I I I assure you of that. We will we will get to that because Lucifer is one of one of the ones I have to question about. But I, I I you know I mean I guess the easiest answer is the paintings were wrong. The paintings they they just went with the with what they you know they didn't go by what the book said. They they went by what they could paint. Um, yeah, I think we've got to be fair to the artists. I mean, how on earth do you paint something like that? You know, they, they wanted to make a dramatic depiction that was comprehensible to the people around them. Um, only the theologians would really have known what we were, what, you know, what they were actually meant to be dealing with. An artist has a completely different set of problems. And to be fair to them, they've got to do something. Also, they were paid mostly by the church, hmm. um, in which case the church would have, would have wanted to say, and anybody looking at your painting won't know what you're talking about. Can you change that, please? Right. Um, so, you know, if you're going to paint some monstrosity with some sort of, you know, what's the sort of body? If you don't want to paint that, then it's basically incomprehensible in a painting. Therefore, there's no moral instruction in that painting. There's no spiritual advice or guidance in that painting. And the patrons of the church that wanted those things in their art wouldn't really have thought that was a job well done. Montgomery County, Maryland is where businesses go to be next. Home to a highly skilled, diverse workforce, a thriving business community, competitive incentives, and more. MoCo will help transform your business. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com to see how we can help you be next. 
Want to create a breakthrough gene therapy or life-saving vaccine? Pioneer aerospace excellence? Take your hospitality tech brand international? Montgomery County, Maryland is where you can do all that and more. Use our ideal location next to D.C. Diverse world-class talent and our vast business resources to be the next company to make your mark and transform the world. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com. That's bnext.thinkmoco.com to learn how we can help you create something remarkable. Um, so to be fair to the artist, I mean, there are one or two bizarre exceptions that were always on the verge of being heretics anyway. Um, you know, no, they had to keep to a particular formula because that's not only what their sponsors wanted, but, you know, they, they were very aware that they were doing a moral work and not just an artistic work. Okay. So Malak, I believe, means messenger. Um, so is Malakim just sort of a overarching term for angels that they all serve as some sort of messenger or is Malak a particular angel uh, and is Malakim a particular class or rank? No, you're looking at classes and ranks. I mean, like Michael, you know, Michael isn't actually a single angel. It's a class and rank of angels. Oh. Um, and certainly, I mean, mystics and scholars like Rudolf Steiner um, are very, very good on that. You know, if we're looking at the concept of an adept, someone that has a real working knowledge, more than a theoretical knowledge of these circles, of these things. I and mean, he instantly comes to mind as someone who only died recently, who claims to have had that insight, those interactions, and the academic skill to categorize it all. Therefore, certainly, he, you know, the Gabriel uh, angels are a rank. Uh, so are the Raphael and so on. I mean, along with the angels of death. I mean, it's a rank of angels. Azrael is a rank of angels who are meant to be our helpers. You know, obviously it's a time of transition. Most people, we have to take it as rank, do not want that transition. You know, unless they're unworldly saints, maybe, or they, they've had problems or they've got sicknesses, all of which is completely understandable. Therefore, that's when sort of the sugary, sweet imagery turns up. And arguably, again, that turned up quite early in artistic depictions, simply because of the material the artists were dealing with. Um, so, you know, you get the, the comforter, you get the, you, you get the angelic hand on the shoulder, you get sort of somebody with wings, you know, flying you as the soul into the realms of light. Um, because it's such a traumatic experience, obviously the biggest trauma a human being can ever go through. So that rank, uh, that stream of angelic angels, of angelic angels, uh, of angelic lives, uh, was depicted in that way to try and ease, you know, sugar, the sugar on the pill, the sugar on the nut, because people trying to ease the idea of the transition. Um, actually, I think that's quite legitimate. Um, so, you know, it's not some grim reaper that's meant to show up sickle in hand, severing your life whether you like it or not. I mean, that, that, again, that idea sounds up a lot later. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 you know, helpers and friends and cousins in the other world that just happen to be non, not entirely human, guiding us to the next stage. You know, either you take the idea that God is a God of us seriously, or you don't. If, if God is something along the lines of a judge and a lawyer, then you get one opinion of what that is, you know. But why leave it there? Why not some sort of uh, schoolmistress? You know, it depends what model of God you're working with. If, however, I would say you're working from the point of view of love, I mean, and why do I say that? Let's look at what Jesus Christ himself says in the New Testament. The main point of what he's saying are the eight Beatitudes. Bless those who curse you, love those who hate you, 
Therefore, you're looking at a God of love. Uh, you're looking at a God of wisdom. You're not looking at this very unfair uh, judge that basically gives human beings standards they can't possibly ever live up to, and then finding us in the wrong. Um, you know, there's something illogical in that. There's something inhuman in that. I can think of human beings that would do better than that. But, you know, so we're not, you know, God is a term, a title term at the end of the day. It's not a name. I mean, the name, you know, Jehovah is a name. Right. Yeshua is a name. Uh, God means literally the sovereign. It means the sovereign of the universe, the ultimate being, the supreme being. Therefore, to have earned that name, to be worthy of that epithet, you must be actually, you know, deserving of that title. And, you know, and to look at some of the depictions of God floating around at the moment, there is no way that particular depiction is even human, let alone anything divine. So we've got to start, you know, from what particular model are we looking at and then how things pan out from there. You know, you couldn't have Jesus calling God Father, Daddy, I mean, other must translate as Daddy, uh, which scandalised the rabbis of his day, um, who wanted somebody like, a, I don't know, the leader of the Sanhedrin, um, who could make decisions on their on behalf of Israel and would eventually send the Messiah, of course, which would, who would be a military conqueror. Um, the king of Israel was not only a prophet, but also a military conqueror. Mm -hmm. So they're still waiting for the Messiah, who will deliver Israel once and for all for its enemies and put all of the rest of us under its yoke. I mean, that's, that's the tradition in the mainstream. Whereas Christians started developing different traditions based on the outpourings of the apostles of the New Testament, which were basically anarchist communities. I mean, people tend to get the idea nowadays of, of how these books were composed completely wrongly. I mean, you know, you're dealing with ordinary people without any resources. Um, paper was incredibly expensive to produce. Uh, a papyrus, a document, wouldn't have been within the range uh, of ordinary people or ordinary synagogues. You'd have, you'd have needed some somebody like, you know, the, I don't know, the emperor in Rome to pay, basically pay for it and authorise it. You'd have needed the Sanhedrin in Israel. A lesser organisation simply wouldn't have had the resources to do that. Uh, you know, and if you're going to all that expense and then you need scribes, um, you know, your, your view is going to cause, a, you know, a, a lot of energy and it's going to use a lot of resources in the community. I mean, they had things called Masoretic texts in those days. You know, everything was memory. Nowadays, we're sceptical of that for the wrong reasons. You know, oh, my, how, can, how much should I remember about yesterday or, or last week? But actually, mnemonics was a whole science in the ancient world. And you would be tested on a text that you were going to memorize, not only forwards, but backwards. Um, and let's take the, continue the example of the rabbis. Uh, they would suddenly ask one of the aspirants, to answer a question about the middle of the text when they'd be, you know, they'd be talking about the, the beginning of the text and they were expected to answer. So this, this whole industry, intellectual industry was going on in the ancient world. Uh, if we take the Gospels at face value, um, they were very ordinary men and women, mostly. I mean, Luke was a doctor, truly. But, you know, ordinary men and women who felt something of spectacular value, unique value had happened in their lives. Um, and they wanted to share that after a great deal of discussion and division. Uh, not all of them thought that the church could survive or should survive. 
maybe it should be just a, a, a correction, a corrective to Israel. Uh, the original people of Jesus were called the Jesus people. You get something called Q-text, uh, the sayings of a saviour, the sayings of a teacher. And Jesus would have been seen as a, either a wisdom teacher, a philosopher, um, or literally the son of man. Um, that is confused nowadays. We're all sons of God, all of us. The ancient world was very aware of that. When Jesus says the son of man, he's actually making a divine claim. Um, mm. That was not a title used for everybody. That's where the modern world tends to get a little, you know, cut the cart before the horse. I was just about to use that wonderful British saying, arse about face. <laughs> but I'm on a show speaking as a clergyman, so I must say that. Um, you know, so you've got the problem of the resources. You've got the problem of the view of the original Christians, all of whom, the majority of them, tended to see this as a school amongst the Israelis, correcting what the Israelis themselves, the children of Israel, were about. I mean, certainly there are uh, extra evidences of that, like uh, Jesus is constantly referring to the book of Daniel, um, either directly or indirectly. He's also referring to one of the rabbis of his day who was very well known, learned Rabbi Hillel, um, who was a, a Jewish theologian and a lawyer, um, who was constantly critiquing, you know, what we would call the quizzling Sanhedrin on its knees to Rome all the time. Yes, Caesar, no Caesar. And so, you know, where is all this leading? We all know they're a ruthless military power. I mean, they're going across the world, causing massacre after massacre. Why are we even talking to them? So all that is going on, and Jesus certainly approves of all of that. Which leads me back. The apostles um, felt they wanted to testify. Testifying to something of superlative work that had happened in their lives. People crowd around them and small communities start. And it's that teacher, that mystagogue, that adept, surrounded by disciples. That's how the Gospels and the early writings were gathered together. And that's why some of them are actually remarkably early if you're looking at these texts as oral texts, which they were originally. You know, the big, big argument nowadays is, you know, where was it written down? Oh, my God, that late, that shows it knows nothing. That wouldn't have arisen in the ancient world. They were written down when they had the resources to write them down, but they were discussing either whole Gospels or bits of the Gospel, you know, nearly directly after the life of Jesus Christ. So that, that's a wrong way of looking at it. And of course, it's when that Gospel begins to spread and it spread like wildfire, because you're looking at something very libertarian. Uh, you're looking at something incredibly humane. You know, we are all equal. That was not an assumption in the ancient world. I mean, I, I, I can't think of any Anglo-American or, or European culture that thinks that way, but that's because of the Bible. Um, you know, if I get on a bus or I get on the tube over here, I assume everybody around me is of equal worth and value to me. But if I go to India, that is not the assumption. Um, I am more human than the outcast. I'm more human than the Shudra. I'm more human than the caste beneath me. They were born less human than me, and they should pay me the correct respect. So that levelling power in human society, which comes directly out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which comes directly out of Islam, which comes from basically uh, Abraham, the prophet Abraham, starts saying, you know, we're, we're all children of the same source of the same God. Uh, that was felt as an incredibly important message. Certainly the Romans were not all that. 
and all of a sudden the children of Israel as a tribal uh, as tribal worshippers of oh god this will be taken the wrong way you know of, of a tribal god are suddenly seen as much more than that contributing to what Abraham himself says you know one day a great blessing will come to all the world through Israel which of course he was alluding to the Messiah and the Christians come along and say well that's happened that's right. happened and what is the Messiah a wisdom teacher a healer and he's told us something of great truth that nobody knows and nobody realizes we're all equal and we need to start looking after each other a bit better. So that's how these texts started. And of course, other questions begin to arise, but not originally. You know, as things go on, as this process, this philosophical process unfolds. And I'm always fuzzy about the difference between personally theology and philosophy. I mean, I've got three degrees in theology. You know, but if I look back to the first one I did, so that was what they call nowadays the history of ideas. So is that philosophy or is that theology? Because most of the people who contributed to abstract human knowledge through the centuries were the, the theologians or theologists. Yet now we call them philosophers, but that, that simply wasn't the correct designation. Right. So as the process unfolds, quest, other questions arise, secondary questions, tertiary questions. How can a good God allow evil in the world? You know, is there a source of evil? What is the source of evil? Why do human beings die? Are there other realms of being? Is this all there is? Is there something else? You know, they they had the same questions in those days that we do. And sometimes at a much more sophisticated and evolved level than we've got. I mean, you know, there was a survey done a year or so ago in London about literacy levels in London. And we were found currently to be underneath the average citizen in ancient Rome. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we've got to remember our ancestors weren't stupid. They put their, their energy and their time into different areas of life. Um, doesn't mean they were stupid and they were asking questions. And that's why certain branches of knowledge are, are incredibly advanced uh, as we find them in our time. But they're not really the type of questions that general people ask now. And also, I mean, if you're, right, this will get me hated, not your show, Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look at what's happened to Christianity, I mean, it's, it's certainly, right, is it healing anybody nowadays? You know, I take the Bible literally, okay, are you feeding the world or are you, or are you just being a pain in the arse? You know? Religion itself, Christianity itself, sadly tends to be reduced to an ideological system. I mean, what some ministers in some denominations have to do you know, fill in a checklist of do you believe this or do you believe that, which would have been nonsense to anyone in the ancient world in, and should be now to anyone with half a brain. Um, you know, so yeah, actually what you're doing is memorising and defending an ideology, a particular view of life, as opposed to religion, which we tended to tend to see, because the ancients would have seen it that way, as the depth of life, of exploring the depth, of exploring the complexities of what it means human and what that implies in itself so you know evil other types of being what you know why are we all here what's the world made of what does it mean is there any meaning to life those are the, the deep core religious questions which nowadays sadly are falling um, beneath the ideological strain and beneath answers that aren't really answers um, yeah, because nobody wants to acquaint themselves really with the book. And I know it's sounding terribly cynical. It must be because it's so late in Britain. I don't know. 
Well, I'm going to I'm going to add to the problem because I'm not going to try to answer any of those big questions, which are all completely beyond me, um, or at least uh, for anyone else, perhaps. I, you know, I think the the first goal is everyone answers it for themselves, I guess. Um, but I, I want to get to uh, uh, I don't know. I'll call it the fun stuff. It's probably not fun from your perspective necessarily. But let before I forget, first of all, who is Metatron? Oh, well, actually, that's Enoch. Um, that, right, let's get, let's get to it. Let's get to it. I mean, <clears throat> certainly UFOs, but I've actually seen a UFO. Uh, I was a kid in a playground. I grew up in Hampshire, Fairham in Hampshire, uh, this lo- lovely, leafy, rural, reasonably affluent area. Uh, and we were in the beginnings of secondary school. It was, you know, a market town. Um, I don't know if people over there know much about British market towns. Very civilized, but rough and ready. You know, ordinary working people, working hard, but good people. You know, the food was good. Uh, the landscapes were full of <coughs> trees and rivers. And, you know, it was a lovely, lovely place to grow up. And we were all at the beginning of a private school. I went to a private school for the simple reason there were no other schools in, in the vicinity. So, you know, it wasn't an elitist choice, it was a practical choice. And Mrs. Smith, uh, a woman I remember to this day, was the headmistress, a live wire, whoever there was, who believed in educating people through fun and through working out what they were interested in and taking it from that level. I remember all the other teachers hating her because they were afraid of her. (laughs) This very bright, patrician woman who actually believed in educating children, you know, perished the thought. Um, So all that was going on. And uh, we... As I say, we're all in the playground and a silvery disc, completely silent in the classic sense. You know, you get the hub above the source of it, started flying over the playground. Um, and the reaction uh, of everybody was unbelievable. You know, instantaneous psychology. You know what a, a person is during a crisis. So some kids ran off screaming, they're cowards. Um, some started fighting. Look, there are always some, aren't there? You know, and, and I, myself and one or two of the other kids were staring at this thing. It was staggeringly beautiful. It was glittering in a perfectly clear sky, uh, blue and clear in every direction, not a cloud in sight. And we couldn't believe it. Um, it was quite high, but we couldn't believe it. And it was very visible. Um, now, that has to be balanced against the fact, obviously, I was a kid at school, so I hadn't read Carl Jung. Um, also, we were near the city of Portsmouth, which is a naval base. Mm-hmm. So one mustn't rule out obvious answers. Um, my, curiously, my uh, belief in education, formal education, usual education, was destroyed that day. Um, we ran into the teachers who were having tea, it was their tea break and said, right, okay, there's a flying saucer flying over the playground, you didn't come to see it. They all said no, they were in tea break. Uh, and we tried, yeah, and so there's a miracle going on, they don't want to see it. So we tried everything, including begging, they wouldn't come out. So we watched it float off into the distance. Uh, the bell was rung, they used to do things like that in those days. We all went back into class, and the first thing that was said was, we want no talk of any UFOs. <laughs> so that was like, um, which meant I didn't believe in education for years. I mean, I did my my studying, formal studying, later than lots of people, although that was a choice back then. 
simply because I didn't believe these people they were fake. And I'm still not entirely fair. Um, oh, how do we tie that in with the rest? Yeah, therefore, are there, to my mind, UFOs find sources? Yes, because I've seen one. Does that mean, as Eric von Daniken says, they're everywhere in the Bible? No, it does not. Um, you know, if we take, we're obviously edging towards Genesis 6 and we're edging to Ezekiel. Um, certainly there are, I mean, we've got to remember the Bible was not written in English. Right. Um, it was written in Greek from Hebrew originals. Uh, and there were whole councils, there were whole groups of scholars arguing the point about words some words that couldn't even be translated properly, let alone the meaning of paragraphs, the meaning of certain books. Everything was done by committee, because how else can you translate a religious text? A religious text, by definition, isn't like a novel, it's not like a play, it's not like a scientific treatise. I mean, it's meant to be the type of writing that's multi-leveled in origin. It's poetry, it's morality, in other words, moral philosophy. It's history sometimes. It's religious conjecture. So, you know, I mean, how on earth do you get all of that into a translation? Well, the answer is you don't. But, you know, people try and, and good on them. Uh, and also there's an argument amongst the Jews about what type of Hebrew these things were originally written in. So the arguments go on and on and on. All of the original documents, of course, were lo have long since been destroyed. Therefore, there's no way uh, of referring to any of the original two reasons texts themselves have either crumbled with the course of time, or they were deliberately destroyed by rival factions, or they were they were mnemonic texts. They were never actually physical texts in the first place. Right. Um, and shame on all of us but for allowing that to happen. Yeah, and that, the Bible is not the only victim of that temporal process, but it's the, probably the most surprising victim, bearing in mind what it is and what it's saying. But that, that happened. Anyway. Yeah, in 90% of the Bible, when it wants to talk about angels, the Greek word, because I have to start with Greek, angeloi is used, right? Which must mean what we mean by angel, which must mean something like messenger. A couple of times in the Bible, that is not there. And you get weird statements, which are obviously agreements by the group of translators who didn't know how to translate the word. So let's say Genesis 6, I mean, you have the watchers. Uh, if the watchers were angels, why didn't they just say angeloid and make their own life easy? They didn't do that. They said, no, the watchers, those who fly above, why not say angels? But they didn't want to say angels. Um, so, you know, there are outbursts in the Bible for UFO phenomena. I personally think this is one of them. And you end up with a restrained story. I mean, certainly modern evangelicals, with their somewhat alternative view of history, and their alternative view of moral philosophy, and, and that's not a dig. You know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. You know, their view of what biblical narrative is and how it unpacks into the modern world. I mean, they would say, okay, you know, it comes from the time when the disciples approach Jesus and they say, again, a very human question. How will we know when the, the age is ending? How will we know when the world ends? So not just an individual. And Jesus does respond by saying, as in the days of Noah, so will the passing of the Son of Man be. So you have to look back to Genesis 6 and look at what was happening in the days of Noah. And you end up with a very strange story. You don't end up with a, uh, what we think we're, we're looking at. Certainly it's not just Noah's Ark. Um, you get the children of Israel fighting for their very survival against foes 
that we would really consider not entirely human. Um, and their parents, their parenting powers, the Watchers decided to descend to Earth um, and have Congress with human women. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean simple sexual activity. It could mean all sorts of things, but Congress. And children were born. Those are the Nephilim. Now, whether they're actually giants or not is a point. I mean, certainly the word gigantes is used where we get the word giant from, but it might mean something to do with, you know, sort of non-human status. It might mean, you know, you're just a huge bastard. You know, it might mm-hmm. mean something along those lines as opposed to physical height. Um, but certainly, so the Watchers descend, the Nephilim, this forbidden union takes place, whatever it was, and the forbidden offspring suddenly then start to appear who are the enemies of Israel. And that's when you start getting weird subtextual stories, most of which are not in the Bible, they're in popular literatures. Uh, you know, that the, the Watchers realised that they, they had been cursed by the Most High and their work had been cursed by the Most High because they transgressed, they crossed a, a, a Rubicon, they crossed a barrier they simply shouldn't have done. So they start giving knowledge to human beings to try and survive, to, you know, their humanity, their children to try and survive. And, you know, and that includes black magic, it includes sorcery, it includes warfare. Um, so you get all this going on in the days of Noah, and really Noah's Ark, whether that's meant to be taken literally or not. I mean, yeah, I think you know me, Jeff, I certainly don't take it literally. Lots of people do. And that does seem to be the intention of the author. But if you look back to the, the text in those days, that's not necessarily as revealing as it seems to be. In other words, you know, this is a hard fable, this is a hard myth that you will pay attention to. Um, even that's built because the, the rising floodwaters are trying to wipe away a mistake. They're trying to wipe away something that should not have occurred but did occur, and this was the only way of dealing with that. Um, in the created order that we've got, that's known as the world, in the environment we've got, that was the only way of dealing with it. So all that is going on during the days of Noah. Um, UFOs, you know, kidnapping people, alien abduction and the probe and all the rest of it, uh, which of course some of the evangelicals say is happening now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about all that, but I know where something's going on. Um, Montgomery County, Maryland is where businesses go to be next. Home to a highly skilled, diverse workforce, a thriving business community, competitive incentives, and more. MoCo will help transform your business. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com to see how we can help you be next. Want to create a breakthrough gene therapy or life-saving vaccine? Pioneer aerospace excellence? Take your hospitality tech brand international? Montgomery County, Maryland is where you can do all that and more. Use our ideal location next to D.C. Diverse world-class talent and our vast business resources to be the next company to make your mark and transform the world. Visit bnext.thinkmoco.com. That's bnext.thinkmoco.com to learn how we can help you create something remarkable. So that is how we get the Nephilim into this picture. I mean, for me, it's not an overpowering story. It's an interesting story. Uh, but, you know, is, is it to do with the moral philosophy that the Bible's really all about, that it's written about? No. Therefore, can we talk about the mainstream? Can we talk about the main bit? So, you know, the Nephilim Anthropology Conference, for me, is a good project. It's a fun idea. But I can't say it's any type of witness or, or religious statement. For me, personally, it's not. 
some of our fellow panelists do think that. Yes. And that's okay as well. That's great too. Um, but I can't see for me personally, it is. I just thought it was a good idea and it needed exploring and thrashing out. Um, it is linked, all, all of this is linked with the secondary and tertiary Jewish materials. Um, you know, in Islam, what would you call it? You call it the Hadith. You know, it's not the Quran. Uh, you know, sayings and stories and scenarios that are not sacred, that are not canonical in the biblical sense, in the Quranic sense. So they're collected together, but, you know, and there are experts on that secondary and tertiary material, but it's not the prime thrust. The Jews have the same thing. We do. We have apocryphal materials, but nowadays they're out of fashion. Um, Enoch, the most mystical thing in the whole of the Bible, according to the rabbis, is really a couple of lines. Um, Enoch walked with God, and Enoch was not, because God took him. Right. Um, that is very, very, very odd, because that doesn't imply death. Um, it implies some sort of transcendence of being, which is suddenly attained, achieved, or given. Um, and a human being suddenly becoming much more than a human being, you know, in the twinkling of an eye. And that's what was meant to be. It wasn't a violation of those principles. It was what happened. Uh, that figure returns later as the Archangel Metatron, okay. um, who is a very strange figure indeed, because there's still a lot of the human in Metatron. Uh, it go, it, she goes around heaven asking questions um, and interceding for the human race. Uh, some of the apocryphal stories are absolutely bizarre. I mean, my, my favourite one in the sense that I think they're, they're, they're getting at something not usually discussed is the Metatron questioned the archangels uh, about what the nature of God was and took notes and, you know, took classes with all the archangels and ends up hundreds of years later saying to them all, but if I add up everything you're saying, there must be two gods. And the, the story goes, the angels are so horrified, they lashed him with a whip of fire for a thousand years. Um, you know, is that meant to be taken literally? No, it's not. At least I don't think it is. Right. Uh, you know, but it, you know, the symbolism, the, the semiosis, the semiotics of that story uh, uh, are stretching way beyond what that story itself is actually saying. So, you know, it, it's worthy uh, of interest and it's worthy of what became known as the Book of Enoch. Um, the Book of Enoch, again, isn't canonical. Um, some people say it should be. I think the historical grounds for that are extraordinarily shaky. Um, you know, it's something to do with biblical narrative. It's certainly not inspired. Right, what does that mean? It means a group of scholars believe that a depth of consciousness was achieved, a height of consciousness was achieved by the author who's seeing more deeply, and they don't necessarily mean anything supernatural, but they were seeing more deeply or being allowed to see, uh, you know, information and topics at the sort of depth which isn't given to most people 99% of the time. Right. Um, so that was not included, I think, for quite valid reasons, uh, where, of course, you get sort of further information fleshed out, you know, so what happened after the watch has descended, what happened after the progress took place, what type of knowledge did the watchers give, what happened to them, uh, what happened to their offspring, some of whom are the Nephilim, um, who may or may not have been the tall beings with 
two sets of teeth and six hands and six toes. I mean, that not, may not have been there. I mean, all of this has been added on through time. And that's not to say it's not implied, but certainly it's added on through time. It's not in the original. Um, and, you know, so, you know, valid questions that that book explores, but at the end of the day, still, it's not canonical. Um, and it was, you know, it decided that it shouldn't be because it raises, not only is its own status questionable amongst inspired texts, but, you know, it raises the sort of questions that are just leading in the wrong direction. You know, will, will a study of Alistair Crowley's book of magic in theory and practice lead you to higher consciousness? Some of us will say no. It's, you know, anything on magic and occultism, as fascinating as it is, isn't leading you into realisation. It's leading you away from that, certainly. So the theologians, the theologists that decided on the canon, in my view, quite rightly thought, no, that, that's not, not really what we're getting at. And so it, it floats around and it's very interesting. And it ends up being a source text for, uh, uh, the, what was that awful movie, Noah, who was the who played Noah again? The Russell, Russell Crowe. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't stand him at the best of times anyway. <laughs> but the most unconvincing Noah I've ever seen in my life. I think it was Chuck Messler, a man I admire no end. I'm not sure I had much to agree with him about, but I admire his testament. I admire his witness. Um, so, you know, and all of a sudden, the prophet that was made into the burning. How did that happen? You know, so, yeah, I mean, you're looking at materials that are very, very rich and very interesting, but they lack a certain depth, a religious cutting edge. So that's Metatron. There's one down. The So... I guess we'll get to to Satan, who I think, you know, I, most people consider Lucifer and Satan to be synonyms. I guess once Lucifer fell out of favor, uh, sort of assumed the title of Satan as adversary. But Lucifer uh, was, I think they said on the right side, uh, the right hand, basically the right hand man of God, obviously not a man. But what would... Would Lucifer have been a seraphim or a cherubim, or, or would the would Lucifer have been more like a archangel level? Because it seems like it should be one of the earlier names. Oh no, this is one of the earliest. I mean, depending on the rabbinical school you're actually addressing, or the Christian community you're thinking of. I mean, certainly that entity. Um, certain people sympathise again, like Chuck Mister, and that's no disrespect him at all, a remarkable man and a great a man of great knowledge. Uh, but he, even he could simplify the text when he wasn't sure what it was they were actually trying to say. I mean, for Chuck and certainly evangelicals, Lucifer, which of course would mean beautiful light, um, was the choir master in heaven. Um, and, you know, the, the leader of celebrations around the throne. Until iniquity was found in him, and he was cast out of heaven. And yeah, again, you get Isaiah talking about the fall like lightning from heaven to earth. I actually think there's a lot hidden behind that. Um, so Lucifer loses the, the heavenly name and becomes Satan, but of course that just means adversary. So you've got you've got the choir master who becomes the adversary not only of God but uh, of humanity generally. Um, would he have been a seraph? I'm saying he and the, you know, just a cherub. Okay, so what what's essentially the difference between a cherub and a seraph? Uh, well, not only a lessening of being, a lessening of power. Um, you know, evil in 
the sense it's normally described nowadays actually isn't that Christian. Um, you know, if, if you see a, 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 a movie baddie, I don't know, you see, gosh, I'm trying to think of a great baddie. Uh, I don't know, Professor Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes or something, yeah, a man given to doing the wrong thing because he's just like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that isn't really what Christianity is saying. Um, as you fall away from the divine presence, you lose the divine qualities. So you lose intelligence, you lose beauty, you lose truth, you lose goodness, until you end up this vacant irrelevancy at the bottom of things. Um, that really is one of the original views of what falling away from the divine presence means. Uh, not this operatic demon going around causing nausea everywhere. I mean, that's quite a deep thing. Right, the, um, the red horns and all that in yeah, the town. I mean, and all of that gets confused with ancient paganism, of course. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, the horned one probably had his prototype in the god Pan, um, who, of course, was not a malevolent entity, was not a malevolent story. I mean, you know, the god of the woodlands, you know, the god of trees and forests and wild things, and certainly not malevolent. You know, boisterous, amusing, full of knowledge. Pan, of course, would have been one of the original ways of referring to the world's soul amongst the philosophers, the one universal life that connects us all. Um, therefore, it was the secret behind the gods themselves, which is why the gods were always in two minds about how to deal with Pan, because Pan, at the end of the day, outranked them. Uh, and, you know, when you get stories from the ancient world of somebody surfacing after a, uh, some time in meditation and reading, hearing Hearing a voice saying the great god Pan is dead, actually what you're listening to is a clash of mystery schools. Um, so, you know, what that word means, now the words are terminated, yada, yada, yada. So the, the operatic devil we're, we're presented with nowadays, Satan, uh, literally means the enemy. Um, and that is how the figure evolved from being the adversary in God's court. In other words, a true servant of God whose job it was to uphold to present the court with all the things that people didn't want to hear and he did this and he did that you know and this was wrong because that's the job of a prosecutor from that we've now got the enemy uh, not only of the heavenly court but of humanity in general uh, so the devil uh, the prince of darkness really becomes more of a manichaean figure i mean that really is the philosophy and theology haunting all of this. Uh, let me give you an aside for a minute. Um, certainly you never hear a word against the Persians in any of the scriptures, any of the Jewish scriptures, any of the, uh, the Christian scriptures, because it all goes back, one of the major influences on all of those texts is Zoroastrianism, from the prophet Zoroaster, who of course started Zoroastrianism as a religion in Persia and those lands. And it was the Persians that, of course, liberated the children of Israel from the tyrannical Babylon. Uh, there were no, no redeeming features of higher order values in Babylon. It was a bit like ancient Rome, all to do with, oh my God, modern Greek. You know, all to do with power and privilege. Get out my way and I outrank you. Um, that's what their whole society was built on. That was seen as abhorrent by the Jews, by the children of Israel. Um, and the Persians come along with their much more enlightened view of human life and set them free. Um, and of course, the Bible had been effectively destroyed in Babylon. Um, 
its slave peoples weren't allowed to be literate. The Jews were always very literate, uh, simplifying things, but because we're on a, a popular program, and I can go into that at some other point if you like. Yeah, at some other time. Um, but certainly as a, a people that prized knowledge, as a people that prized what we would call literacy, that was discouraged by violence, by, by deliberate oppression in the empire, in their empire. Um, and so a lot of the original biblical texts were destroyed and lost. And the great genius of the Old Testament is Ezra the priest, who says once, once you know, liberation has started, okay, what is left? What have we got left of what we remember, of what we knew? How we used to worship God, the practices, the rites, what do we remember? Can we write it all down? Can we finally get to the stage where we codify our resources and get them together? And that's how we end up with what we know as the Old Testament. Um, that is not. You know, does that mean that all this is a the, you know, all of it's a victim to history? No, it doesn't. It means that's the flow of history. God is more than capable of rewriting a Bible. Uh, God is more, the spirit is more than capable of inspiring people again to see those insights. As a historical process, however, that's the way the world goes, which leads me back to Zoroaster. I read the Agathos. Uh, it's a, a lengthy poem, basically, um, written by Zoroaster when I was an undergraduate. I had to put it down because it was so modern. Um, but it's written in the Bronze Age. Uh, I found the whole thing incredibly uncomfortable, beautiful poetry, but the thought schemes, the thought world that was behind it was very sophisticated, very modern. I found the whole thing incredibly unsettling. A couple of years later, I went back to it and discovered something of immense importance. What Zoroaster is saying, as arguably one of the first prophetic figures of the human race, is that the Indians, the, the, the people of Asia, those peoples are going around with these new weapons called bronze weapons, metal weapons, and the world is turning into a bloodbath. Therefore, how, how you know, so therefore what they worship, the devas, simply cannot be good. They, you know, and no heavenly power would sanction this bloodbath, this, these massacres, nobody. So he reverses, in a sense, the mythological stories of those peoples and says that the devas are now, be, are now devils. You have to understand them that way. They are, they are not working towards the light. They're not working to the betterment of anything. Uh, and they hate people. And their, their way of dealing with people is destruction, violence, and death. And the Azuras, which become the angels, they become the principalities, the powers, the cherubim, the seraphim of light. And he starts what most people think is a dualistic religion. Um, Try to make use non-inflammatory language, but I don't, I'm not sure I can. You know, you're looking at a, a, a type of religion where you get very clear divisions between right, wrong, good, bad, light, darkness. And he would have gone on to say, look, how do we know what's good for us as human beings? In the darkness, things wither and die. In the light, they prosper and they grow stronger. Therefore, we've got to strive to be children of light. We've got to strive to to follow those powers because ultimately we're their children. And it's that type of theology that runs all the way through the scriptures, um, Jewish and uh, Christian, and has informed so much of the modern world. Um, 
yeah, it even informs modern writers like Dennis Wheatley. Uh, of course, Maria Wheatley is one of our participants uh, in two weeks' time. Yeah. But, you know, it, it informs nearly all of modern occultism. There's a, there's a war going on between right and wrong. There's a struggle. And where do you stand in the struggle? That sort of Manichaean, dare I say, duality is there from the beginning to the extent that it was found out to be uncomfortable. But I mean, if you look at some Victorian Bibles, the story of the Magi was actually removed. Um, mostly Protestant Bibles, that's not me having a dig, that's a simple fact, because it raised unfortunate questions. Why would God allow three pagan priests who had something to do with astrology to be some of the people who saw the infant Jesus from the word go? Why, why would God allow that? You know, how can you have three practicing magicians in the very presence of the infant Christ? But I mean, it was there in the original. Uh, and they were led by a star, which is probably a metaphor. In other words, their knowledge of the stars and what we would call astrotheology allowed them to calculate where this incarnation of light was about to occur. And they take three symbolic gifts to show that, you know, the very sources, some of the sources of all of the holy texts were represented by three people who understood their point of origin at the very birth of the Saviour. All these are remarkable things, remarkable developments, which leads me back to the devil. <laughs> um, really, after, the, just before the Middle Ages, as the Christian texts themselves are still forming, you get a, a solidification in the texts of what the devil is, uh, what his function is, what his job is, um, which again reflects back on the translation of the text, he takes. But he becomes this arch-rival uh, of God and the heavenly powers and the source of all evil, which is now much more active. You know, you get active evil, not simply the passive view of evil I was describing a minute ago, falling away from divine grace, you know, whereby you lose all the attributes of the divine. Now it becomes a much more angry, violent, uh, wicked, pernicious entity that has nothing but the willful destruction of the human race in mind as a way of hurting God. Uh, because, you know, we've got to remember on one level, none of us matter in these scriptures. We're only human. You know, we're in the middle of a Star Wars. Uh, and we're the pawns. Can we, can we be manipulated one way or the other? Um, sorry for dragging a movie into it, but you know, if you right, Star Trek would be Buddhism. You know, this sort of slow unfolding of ever, ever great discovery. Whereas uh, Zoroastrianism must be Star Wars, this battle going on all the time uh, between the goodies and the baddies. I mean, yeah, that's a fair representation, I think. And that's when you get this sort of operatic devil from the Middle Ages onwards, um, who's going around the world causing trouble and really not being a good guy at all, until, of course, he takes the final incarnation at the risk of being misunderstood in the writings of Goethe, in the writings of the romantics and decadence, whereby he becomes this sort of sinister defender of the human race. Uh, because, you know, oh, God gives you all these rules and all these things you can't live up to. Why not just be a total bastard, a rebel, rebel like me? And you end up with very unsavoury, views of what's going on, which, which basically muddy the moral waters of scripture even further. Um, so that's the devil, that's a rough history of the devil and his minions, and it goes back, curiously, nowadays to the original view. 
the darkness is a living force. It's not just the absence of light. It's a source of power. It's a source of energy. It's consciousness. And certain people can draw immense personal power from the service of that particular force. Light is also a force and a power. And it's up to us which direction we choose, because if you look at what the moderns are asking to say, by which I mean the last thousand years, um, the Great War will not continue forever. Um, already the realms of light are beginning to close, using metaphors here, the great gate between manifest creation and what goes on up there. And they're doing their best to reach out to all the people here. We belong in those realms. But that war won't, won't go on forever, and it's already beginning to come to a close. So you've got back to the very beginning of the forces of light against the forces of darkness and humanity caught in this no man's land in the middle of it all. That is dramatic. I have a question for you on the seraphim because I know that in a lot of circles, maybe most notably evangelical, okay. maybe not, that, that they're that they're uh, equated with the, the serpents and reptilians and this, that, and the other thing. Now, my understanding of the seraphim is that, no, they had the, you know, some four heads, six heads. Some, one was, might have been a lizard. One was a human. One was a lion. One was a bull. One was an eagle, you know, whatever. Um, so is, is there anything serpentine, uh, particularly about the, 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 the seraphs? And I know that the, the, the answer is it depends who you're talking to. Let's just go in the most accepted version of, uh, you know, Judeo-Christianity. Well, again, there'd be a difference between those two schools. Ah. But, you know, the, the word serach uh, means flying serpent, ah. um, which originally wasn't really negative or malevolent at all. It was a description of sky serpents. It was a description of those powers that really not only served God, but their own ends as well. And of course, they're, therefore, they're judged. Um, you know, are they doing the right thing or are they not doing the right thing? Are they just feathering their own nests? But it seems to go back to very ancient Hebrew tribal mysteries, um, the very origins of it all, whereby the serpentine energies of the earth, you know, the ley lines and all that sort of stuff, um, the energies they saw in those patterns and forms were discussed, you know, therefore they're celestial in one sense, in the sense they're not human, some of whom are in the sky, some of whom are on the earth. Uh, but, you know, they, they go about their own business in their own way. I mean, I know certain people are going around calling them reptilians. I mean, that's not really what the original story would have meant. And again, if you're looking for that sort of thing, I don't know, I don't know why demonology isn't raising its very ugly head. Angelology is being ripped apart by various people. But demonology was also a medieval science. I mean, there's enough there to start talking about these reptiles without without dragging in, you know, dragging heavenly powers down. Right, without blaming the poor uh, seraphim uh, yeah. in that. And that's great because I wanted to get into demonology and, and I wasn't really sure where to start. So I figured that, that the Seven Princes of Hell probably was a good place to start. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you've got to remember, I mean, I like Milton. I like the poet Milton. I mean, he's the guy that gives psychologies to all these entities. Um, the Seven Princes of Hell, the Servants 
the direct servants of Satan really go back to a prototype in Dante, which Milton sort of comments on as a brother poet, but feels Dante is too Catholic, therefore he's misunderstood what's going on. I think that's really unfair, because really they're coming from different points of view about the same topic. But the princes of hell represent all the things that go horribly wrong in the created order, you know, disruption, physicality, chaos. And they, of course, have got their own servants that lead to death, war, destruction. Uh, in other words, the, the dark energies marshaled by the satanic figure in his war against the Most High. I mean, certainly Lucifer would mean something like pride as it's used by that time. Uh, Beelzebub would be something like envy. Samathas would be wrath. Uh, Abaddon would be sloth, sloth. Mammon, greed. Uh, Belphegor, I mean, that would be something like gluttony, I suppose, and Asmodeus, lust. Um, so you're looking at personifications that the enemy is using. The entification, that's also a, a concept that's fallen out of favour at the minute that the enemy uses against the human race. You know, The idea in the ancient world was if it can be become a clear concept, if it can be given uh, a historical life, then there is the possibility it can gain substance itself under its own momentum and become an entity. The process was called entification. I mean, it's very big in AI at the minute, curiously. So, you know, there are interesting precedents for that. Um, but, you know, the, these are the marshals these are the lords of the dark circles which are in direct service to satan i mean certainly i think as far as i recall dante mentions nine circles mm -hmm. and of course that's meant to be the mirror image of the nine circles in heaven right. uh, you get a very interesting image at the core of that book people forget it's a divine comedy i mean everything works out okay in the end the traditional medical system doesn't allow doctors the necessary time to spend with each patient, and that's not the way it should be. At PartnerMD, you'll have the one-on-one -on -one time you need with your doctor. PartnerMD provides individualized care, medically advanced testing, and 24-7 access to care at a cost that's lower than you might think. Maybe it's time for a new tradition. PartnerMD. It's better health care for an even better you. Visit PartnerMD.com. To everyone who's dealt with the hassles of accessing healthcare and thought, it shouldn't have to be like this. You're right, it shouldn't. PartnerMD is better healthcare for an even better you, much more than concierge medicine. PartnerMD is healthcare the way it should be. 24-7 access to care, virtually no waiting, and the one-on-one -on -one attention you need to help maintain your healthy lifestyle. Visit PartnerMD.com for pricing and more information. Tragedy in the ancient world if it didn't work out, if it was a comedy, it worked out. The Dante is escorted by the angels into heaven at the end, so everything is cool. Uh, but you know, as Satan was thrown out of heaven, the idea is there's a, a crater at the top of the world where the that, that body hit the earth, which has pushed the soil out on the other side, pushed the rock and soil out into being a mountain. Uh, and it's through the circle, it's through sort of the, the um, entrances through this indenture in the earth as you walk down it into the inner earth you find the nine circles each one of which is ruled by a prince of hell until you actually see the figure of the inverted satan himself 
was, of course, upside down because he was thrown out of heaven and fell head first. And who has three heads because he's trying to mimic the Trinity and can't do it. I just find um, it very interesting that there's the seven, and if I'm not mistaken, in the in the Book of Enoch, which wasn't discovered until later, and I'm yeah. sure it was known, but I don't know if it was known by Milton and Dante, but the, they were the seven lieutenants. So, you know, then they had angel yeah. names. I think is I think Azazel. I think um, I think Belial was was one. Are, are they parallels? Are they the same, or is it just the, it's a coincidence that it's a number seven or uh, seven comes up a lot. <laughs> I, Don't forget, seven is, is a sacred number in the ancient world. I mean, they they practice gamatreya. I mean, for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet, there's a symbol, there's a star, there, there's a gemstone, there's a plant, there's an association. I mean, what they were doing back in those days was building what we would consider an entire philosophical language with endless associations built into it. So it wasn't just a a group of ideas, it was a group of of associations which was meant to build in the mind this map, this 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 sort of experience of what we were going through as human beings. So the inversion of the sacred seven is what is going on there. Oh. You know, for every angelic power, for all of the seven angelic powers, there were seven demonic powers. Because the darkness, the, the, the blackness of the night was trying to oppose the, the force of light on every level. So whoever wrote, whoever wrote the books of Enoch, whether it was Enoch or someone else, they were using that quite purposefully, and then oh, yeah. Dante and Milton uh, borrowed it or, or came upon that same conclusion themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's a very ancient idea. I, I don't think that those, those concepts are absent from either of those authors. Okay. Let's, let's get ourselves back a little bit to the subject of the conference. I think you did a great job of saying, telling us who the Nephilim are generally thought to be. There are two other terms that I hear related to the Nephilim that I'm not exactly sure what they are or if there's agreement. One was introduced to me by our mutual acquaintance, your your dear friend, someone that uh, I don't know well enough to call dear friend, but someone that, that has uh, worked with me, but Jim Willemson, and hopefully he's doing well, uh, the Gaborim. The yeah, I mean, you're looking at different tribes monstrosity, um, you know, they're the cousins of the Nephilim. They're not Nephilim themselves, but they're the cousins. They're still the the forbidden offshoots, the forbidden progeny of this liaison that should never have taken place. I mean, I think the end of the story for the, 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 the fallen entities, which is interesting, is that they were cast into the outer darkness. Uh, strange story, that one. So you get Hades which isn't simply a graveyard. I mean, if you look at some modern scholars, they want to make it equivalent with a modern graveyard, in other words, where there's no life, where there are bones, where there are ruins. And, you know, we all end up in Hades. Uh, that's not quite what the ancients meant. But they would have seen, they would have envisaged a realm of leftovers, uh, some of which were psychic. I mean, human beings would have become psychic husks. You know, the leftover of the body, what happens to the psychic component is left over, but barely conscious in a dreamlike state because it has none of the energies that the body can give it anymore. So it's just floating around as a leftover. Um, but there are, there, are, there are elements, there are worlds beneath that. And Tartarus uh, was one of them. It was, what was it, as far below Hades 
as the earth is below paradise. So, so the entities that cause this problem in the first place are, putting, are put basically into a cell, they're put into a holding area. They can't do any more, they can't make any more trouble until judgment can be enacted upon them. But what they've done is they, they fathered and mothered not simply the Nephilim, but cousin ethnicities, cousin groups that were also prowling around looking looking for trouble and oppressing good people. So who else other than the Gubarim is is the Raphaim one of these other the cousins? Yeah. Yeah. Are are there others? Um again, I, I wouldn't claim I'm a huge authority. I've heard of about three others. But I, I don't know enough of this particular area to say that they're directly Nephilim related. Okay. Well, what are the words, the names? What? Oh, uh, there was one Goddorathim, and I'd have to look at my own notebooks, which aren't in front of me at the moment, to see the other two. Okay, interesting. Do you think that the different uh, cousins, so to speak, are because they were fallen angels from the different choirs, or is that not it at all? Um, I mean, it's always possible. I mean, don't forget, they wouldn't be, the Watchers wouldn't be angels over these weird entities, whatever they were. Um, certainly you get in 1 Timothy, I think, where he says, you know, if God didn't spare those angels in their first estate, so certainly Timothy thinks we're referring to angels. Uh, but that's not, as I say, necessarily the meaning of the rabbinical originals. Um, I don't think you're looking at angelic activity with these ethnicities at all. You're looking at something else interacting with the human race in a way that it wasn't, it shouldn't have been doing. And a number of groups being born from that. So you're not looking at angelic necessarily interference. You are looking at very superior beings coming around and throwing around their, coming down and throwing their superiority around. And then um, the jinn yeah. is something completely different though. Well, I mean, not necessarily. Um, certainly Sufi and Arabic theology is something I know very little about. I know it's enticingly beautiful and complex because, of course, they come along at a, a, a different point in history. Um, and they've got all of the artillery of, of the schoolmen, uh, of, of the medievals. They know how to categorize things. They've got books we no longer had in the West on Aristotle and the ancient Greek philosophers. So they actually start from that point of origin. They don't start, I mean, if you listen to some people nowadays, you think they're just a group of Arabs, you know, riding around on camels, beating each other senseless. Actually, Islam started in quite a developed way because that part of the world valued scholarship. And they had books that we destroyed. I mean, there were various purges in the church, destroying philosophical and scientific texts. And Aristotle, again, what is wrong with human beings? They just lost his books. So, you know, they only survived by accident in that part of the world. Um, and therefore, Islam came along and thought, well, that's highly significant. We're using it to found what we're doing, to build what we're doing. Um, certainly, some of the scholars are relating these beings to what we would call either the Watchers or the Nephilim. Uh, you know, apparently the jinn are made of fire. They're not made of soul like us. They're made of fire. And the the spiteful, the evil jinn, some of them have holes on their heads. Uh, they're not. I mean, nothing can oppose Allah. Nothing. That's not possible in their system. It's actually not possible in ours if you read the text properly. But if you listen to some modern preachers, you'd be surprised at that. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing actually can ever challenge or stand against Allah. It's not possible. 
But these things are allowed leeway uh, through what we would call secular mundane history. They're allowed to do, you know, it's like giving somebody enough rope to hang themselves. Right, you lot do what you do, and then we'll see what's inside you. We'll see what worth you've got. We'll see what you're like as a person. So uh, Allah and the angels are allowing that to see if the good gin are good and the bad gin are bad and what influence and impact they'll have on the human race. So I would put my neck out there and say, yes, there is a link. But I can't think of anybody that's actually written upon that yet. Hmm. Well, that's not going to be me, but it seems like something that somebody should write about. Um, all right. So we have, we're not sure about the jinn. We have the Nephilim who are the offspring of the watchers who are, so they're not angels. It's, it's not like they were fallen angels. They're, they're something else entirely. Well, some people say they're angels, but at the risk of being contentious, I think I haven't followed the text carefully enough. No. I mean, if the, if the text wanted to say angel, it would have said angel. It wouldn't have said watcher. Okay. All right. Uh, and then we also have the Goborim and the Raphaim. So it's not it's it's not about certain were pre-flood, certain were post-flood, as as some would have you believe. It's 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 that they're just uh, di- different variations of this Congress. Well, I mean, a, a friend of mine, believe it or not, is Ali Marzulli. Um, he would certainly talk about pre-flood and post-flood. And yeah, I count Jim as a very very good friend of mine. Uh, he's, he's Having a few health difficulties at the minute, so anyone that's listening to this show who believes in prayer, please send out some prayers for Jim. He's having a tough time, and he's a good, good, good man, and he doesn't deserve it. So anyone that believes in prayer, please send out some positive energies to Jim. Uh, yeah, I mean, even my trouble with that is even if they're post-flood variants, they're still variants of the Nephilim. Right. Right, they they wouldn't need a new name just because of the, of the flood. So, yeah, I, I yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, so all right, so that did a pretty good job, and I think that uh, well, I, I don't know what else sells the conference other than the complexities here and the fact that folks have an opportunity to hear from yourself and I don't know about a, a dozen uh, people of different expertise and from different disciplines and different philosophies and different interpretations of scripture and philosophies and theosophies on this very subject. And then you can decide for yourself or you can be like me and 30 months later, still not be sure and, and hoping that there's an easy answer, but eh, nothing hard has an easy answer usually. Um, Dr. Reverend David Parry, thank you very much and remind people again how, where the conferences, when the conferences, how they can buy tickets, and how else they can find you and support you, because you have a veritable plethora of projects. Oh, let me say, um, it's been a real honor getting to know you, Jim. Oh, thank you. Uh, Jim, sorry. Um, remember, it's past midnight here, so I'm fading fast at the minute. Um, You've been the true gatekeeper of this project. I was very suspicious of you at first. I know. Um, and, and Garden of Doom, which of course is G.O.D., so that had me <laughs> very, very suspicious. Um, you've turned into a good friend of mine. You're the real stalwart uh, helping me with this project. Uh, your help has been inestimable, and your friendship is something I treasure. I mean, you become, I don't know you as long as Jim. But you're becoming that sort of person to me, and I'm wow. very, very grateful. 
that you're in my life and you're you're with us in this project. Let me say one thing about the panel. Uh, my view is that we're looking at human origins. Um, it started in 2013. Um, as, as people probably won't know, one of the other hats I wear is as a British theatrical. You know, I've directed and produced nine major productions. You know, it's not my career because I like choosing what I want to do. Uh, and what I want to do is metaphysical material. <clears throat> so I don't, I'm not a chart like Spielberg or those, those people. I choose what I want to do. Um, but you know, those, those are major productions. And sometimes between the productions, you think, well, you know, for publicity purposes, we've got to keep up, yeah, and, and face out there. You've got to be seen. So this idea started back then, as I say, 2013, because of a friend of mine, Vladimir Wiedemann, who is on the panel. Yep. Um, and he'd been, uh, he'd been involved with Moscow State University, where, I mean, they beat all of us, Europeans, Americans, by talking about the diversity of the human condition way before anyone over here was talking about it. There were, there were giant people, there were big people, there were small people. Um, and, you know, we, basically we weren't looking at the real hard science and history of it all. Um, and none of that came across because of the Cold War and the Iron Curtain. And it was Vladimir that actually said to me, look, have you thought of doing something on all this? To which, of course, I said, well, no, I mean, that's the anthropology side of it all. You know, are all these mythologized stories, and there's nothing trivial in mythology and mythologizing. These are deep-seated truths of the human race and what it means to be human, at the very least. You know, I, I, so I said, no, I, I'm not really involved in all of that. It sounds fascinating. To which he replied, you know, none of this has ever been touched. Now, that's not entirely true. I mean, with the fall of the Iron Curtain, those resources did start to trickle over here. Uh, and we, some universities, particularly Stanford, I think, in, in the States, have started talking about similar ideas. Um, but I thought it was still worth putting on. But the it collapsed. Um, I'm not a person that necessarily believes in too many subtle forces. I won't say none. And I'm not necessarily given to that type of thinking easily. Um, it was Jim Wilhelmson that said to me, Oh, the Nepaline, they don't like being discussed. And you're like, oh, shut up, Jim. You know, there's evangelical garbage, which I wouldn't have said to him, of course. Uh, oh, yes, 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 Jim. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, ironically, two weeks later, the entire project had collapsed. Or maybe not ironically. Um, I'll never trust a British bank again as long as I live. And all of a sudden, our modest credit line had been removed, apparently to save our business. You're kidding! Yeah. Uh, you know, we were on the we were on the stage. We were at the stage of booking flights and accommodation, and then all of a sudden, couldn't pay for any others. The whole thing collapsed, and we had to apologise to everybody. They decided, in their wisdom, to restate the credit the modest credit line after the conference. So of course, there was no point in doing it. And I ended up thinking, okay, um, that, that's a good idea, but we'll leave it there. But it was recently that my partner said that that was a good idea, you know, because you're not only looking at comparative religion, you're looking at comparative mythologies, comparative text, and indeed history and archaeology. Uh, and so why not revive it? And I thought, well, that means you get an interdisciplinary panel looking at core questions. So that's what interested me. Um, and of course, we get people on the panel, which I see as a, a rolling panel, a rolling panel. Each year, there'll be a slightly different collection 
of people speaking, but I see it as a, at least a five-year-long project uh, of experts in different fields trying to compare notes with their audiences of what all this means. You know, what is the truth behind it all? Um, so certainly that's my view of what's happening. I suspect next year we'll be meeting in Scotland, but there, there's another tale behind that one. <laughs> and so what we're doing is we're looking at human origins, we're looking at religious truths, we're looking at philosophical possibilities, uh, occult testimonies, there are cultists involved, there are atheists involved, uh, you know, who think the whole thing is simply or what we would call race memory, or it's, you know, the, the legendary attribution of early races in the human imagination, and some of them are very small, and some of them are very big. But you've got to remember that the children of Israel, when they're going into the land of Canaan, I mean, if we look at it through the lens of modern DNA, I mean, they weren't exactly big people. They were all about sort of five foot something, whereas the Canaanites were about, you know, they were six footers. Yeah, they, these were not small people, they were big people. So you could read the statement, you know, we were grasshoppers in their sight, as a poetic way of saying, these are big bastards. Right. You know, we've got to be careful of them. Um, so, yeah, let's get it all on the table. Let's have a look at what all these things mean and where we're going with it. So this is a, a five-year-long project and all. It started last year with a virtual meeting last April. We actually had a hybrid meeting, by which I mean virtual and in-person get-together at the Royal Asiatic Society last October. Um, if I didn't know better, I would swear there's a force against us. There's been a force against us from that time onwards. Uh, we, we were booking with David Kane College for this year because I thought we needed at least 200 seats. And everything has gone wrong since then. Why are we not at David Kane College? I let the, the ground go fallow for months for the simple business reason. I knew they wanted payment. So I didn't bother to follow up the booking for months. I recently contacted them to find not only could they, they find my booking, which is very strange because they were quoting my own email about me. That may not be the whole truth. Um, but they'd actually put the venue hire up by a £1,000 for no reason whatsoever. And I, I, I remember writing them a snotty email the next day saying, you know, this is, this is completely unprofessional and it's really interesting to see you care nothing for your professional reputation in London. So we, you know, out of a point of principle, let alone money, I couldn't have afforded it. We, we abandoned David Game College. We're now at the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. Yes, the CIA, but that's purely a coincidence. <laughs> in, in Bloomsbury Square, uh, five minutes from the British Museum, lovely and central, a gorgeous old uh, Georgian building, free to your copy all day when you can meet the panellists for this year. I mean, the difference between 200 seats and our now 80 seats um, means that the revenues have changed. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, the booking has also had to change slightly. So I can't afford to fly over all of the people that I wanted to. Uh, and my gym is very poorly at the minute, so I'm worried about him. But, you know, it's a reduced panel this year. But what does that mean in terms of 2023? An expanded panel over a weekend. I'll just find the details of booking for you now. Right, hang on, I've got them here. Okay. No problem. So we're, we're, we're Nakonuk, um, N-A-C-O-N-U-K, Nakonuk22, dot eventbrite, dot co, dot UK, and our online tickets and our virtual tickets are available through that address. 
Wonderful. All right, folks. Well, I know that a lot of the listeners are in the U.S., probably the second place is U.K., so you you, you all are definitely in play. Uh, for those folks in Canada, Australia, I mean, sure, you're, I'm sure you're welcome to, there as well. But uh, And for the many other countries uh, around the world where I have listeners, um, you know, you're probably more interested in, in the virtual tickets. It's a bargain. Uh, you get two days worth of content, um, live stream. So, you know, treat yourself and hear from lots of different people with lots of different views. And the reduced panel, I think it's still 10 or 12 people, all, all said and told, um, excluding myself, who, for whatever reason, is going to have something to say and better come up with something smart pretty soon. Um, but uh, anyway, you'll hear from actual uh, experts and thinkers in their particular disciplines. I think it's a very brave thing you're doing by not making it sort of mono thinking, not even close, quite the, you invite quite the opposite. So, uh, you know, I thank you for all the kind words you gave me, but I'm, I'm really humbled by them because I, I don't really feel like I've done all that much other than uh, have fun. And, uh, and, and that's great because that's, that's mostly what, the show was about, even though it's called Garden of Doom and the acronym was definitely an accident. <laughs> so I realized it afterwards and I'm like, oops. Um, and uh, most longtime listeners of the show know how the name came about. It, it really has <laughs> nothing to do with any of it. It has, just has to do with uh, my original podcast partner was at the time manically gardening. And, and, and we were just trying to come up with things that we're doing and he was gardening all over the place and and I'm sort of grumpy, so Garden of Doom it was. Um, <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's all the deep thought that went into it. Um, but maybe not. Who knows? Anyway, I thank you again for, for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. Thank you for the historical and theological context from it. Uh, and you covered many different disciplines uh, uh, and not all that are in your um, immediate, uh, you know, what, what one might think of when they, when they hear of Reverend. So thank you for that. Uh, I will be talking to you soon. And for the rest of you folks out there, get your tickets and make sure to like and subscribe and share the Garden of Doom. And you'll hear from us again next week or perhaps if it's still Spooktober, middle of the week also, because we'll be doing our two shows a month during Spooktober. So thanks again for listening into the Garden of Doom.
The traditional medical system doesn't allow doctors the necessary time to spend with each patient, and that's not the way it should be. At Partner MD, you'll have the one-on-one -on -one time you need with your doctor. Partner MD provides individualized care, medically advanced testing, and 24-7 access to care at a cost that's lower than you might think. Maybe it's time for a new tradition. Partner MD, it's better healthcare for an even better you. Visit PartnerMD.com. You know, there's something wrong with this offer from BJ's Wholesale Club. There is? Well, yeah, so you get free same-day delivery if you spend $100 or more. Same day? Like, same, same day? So? That's absurd. They got jet airplanes dropping it all in our yard. We order $100 worth of grapes. We get them fresh that same day for free. Pull the other leg, why don't you? Spend $100 or more, get free same-day delivery in as little as two hours on BJ's.com. October 18th to the 24th only. BJ's. Absurdly simple savings.